This episode of Art Curious is brought to you by Anchorlight, home to a 1,500-square-foot, zero-commission gallery providing exhibition opportunities to emerging artists. Please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. In one of Emily Dickinson's most interesting poems, she begins by writing, quote, One need not be a chamber to be haunted, unquote. It is an arresting line that just grabs us immediately because there is such truth in its simple assertion. Dickinson here was writing in the mid to late 19th century, a time when interest in the spiritual realm and things like table tappings, spirit boards, and seances were on the rise. But even then, decades before Freud's popularization of psychoanalysis and the study of the unconscious mind, Dickinson knew what was up. She understood that the idea of a haunted house was indeed a scary one, great for a Christmas-time ghost story or a super-enthralling movie night. But the worst hauntings, the worst curses, she knew that they were the ones that live inside our own minds. Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless. But the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs are weirder, more outrageous, or more fun than you can imagine. This season, season nine, is all about curses in fine art and archaeology, a topic that was suggested by you, our listeners. And today we are going to continue with a closer look at the expressionist painter Edvard Munch and a tragedy that would cast a pall and haunt his own life, and potentially haunt others, too. This is the Art Curious Podcast, exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. I'm Jennifer Dassel. As with the Mona Lisa, I knew Edvard Munch's famed painting, The Scream, long before I knew who Edvard Munch was or had even seen a reproduction of the painting itself in a notebook or a museum store postcard or a dorm room poster. I probably knew it first from Macaulay Culkin's face on the posters for the 1990 movie Home Alone, though it's possible I had also seen it parodied on The Simpsons in Mad Magazine and later as the inspiration for the iconic mask hiding the killer's identity in Wes Craven's Scream films. And lots of people reference this painting daily, whether they know it or not. Because when they text someone a screaming face emoji, they are referencing Edvard Munch. Munch's The Scream has become the epitome of shorthand for fear, horror, and anxiety of all flavors. And its ghoulish central skeletal figure, that garish swirling sunset, and even the two shadowy figures that may or may not be stalking the screamer in the background, all add up to something disturbing and disturbingly relatable to someone from nearly every walk of life. No wonder it's Monk's most famous and celebrated motif. And I say motif here because there isn't just one The Scream. There are several, completed in paint, pastel, and in various printmaking techniques. Monk, you see, was obsessed with getting this concept down on paper and canvas. You might even say that he was haunted by the idea and that the scream has thus haunted generations in many different forms. But what's curious is that another one of Monk's works is as haunting and anxiety-driven as the scream. And from reports of its so-called previous owners, 
It might even be literally haunted. Edvard Munch was one of the very first artists whose biography I learned practically in conjunction with his artwork. I was taught to understand his own mental and emotional struggles in tandem with the anxiety that is so often felt by viewers when looking at his vibrant expressionist paintings. He was born in Norway in 1863 to Christian Munch and his wife, Laura Catherine Bjolstad. As the family grew through the 1860s, Edvard was the couple's second child, and they would ultimately have five kids. Their home, though not the wealthiest, was full of happiness and creativity. Papa Monk loved to encourage storytelling, often sharing the ghost stories of one of his favorite authors, Edgar Allan Poe, as well as highlighting other great works in literature and history. Laura Monk, his wife, was artistically inclined, though in what capacity, I'm not totally sure. But what is known is that she encouraged creativity in her young children, especially her two eldest, Edvard and Edvard's older sister, Sophie. Munk also had a relative on his father's side, Jacob Munk, who was himself a painter, who worked as a portraitist in several European countries after studying in Paris under the tutelage of the neoclassical master Jacques-Louis David, and would even go on to found the Royal School of Art and Design of Christiania, now modern-day Oslo. So art does seem to be in his blood on both sides of his family. Like Andy Warhol half a century later, Edvard was a sickly child, weak and prone to illness, a feature which would blossom later in life to a fear that bordered on hypochondria. And also like Warhol, Monk passed the time when he was homesick from school by drawing. He learned to lean on art as a way to cope, a mechanism that would serve him well, really, throughout his life. But art could only do so much to assuage his illness and his anxieties, and it couldn't magically keep the worst things from happening. When Edvard was just five years old, tragedy struck the Monk family when his beloved mother died of tuberculosis. How awful for five young children, including Monk's youngest sister, who was just an infant, to have lost their mother. But from most accounts, it appears that Christian Monk, the father, may have suffered the most and carried his children into his suffering, too. After his wife's passing, Christian Monk lost practically all the joy in his life and turned toward his Protestant religion for comfort. But he appeared to have taken it to the extreme, focusing on every little thing that could jeopardize his, or his children's, salvation. And this had a long-term effect on Edvard, who later wrote in his journal, quote, My father was temperamentally nervous and religiously obsessive, to the point of psychoneurosis. From him I inherited the seeds of madness. The angels of fear, sorrow, and death stood by my side since the day I was born." Unquote. Even Edvard's poor dead mother was dragged into the mix, summoned in the minds by their father as a grieving spirit looking down from heaven and mourning her children's impiety. It was a lot for the young boy to witness, to experience. And so it's of little surprise to know that not only was little Edvard prone to illness, but he also experienced severe nightmares and even made mention of macabre visions. Surely all of this wasn't helped along by all of those Poe ghost stories, but still, it's not hard to draw a line from Monk's childhood to the scream. And it's even easier to draw a line to his motif of the dead mother. But we'll get to that in a minute. 
I wish I could tell you that things significantly improved for the Monk family at some point. But alas, it wasn't meant to be. Edvard would later say that death and insanity seemed to stalk the family. His younger sister, Laura, named after their mother, was diagnosed as mentally ill while still a child. His brother, Peter Andreas, died unexpectedly of pneumonia at just the age of 30. But none of these tragedies hit quite as hard as the death of his eldest sister, Sophie, who died at just 15 years old. Edvard adored her, and only a year younger than his sister, it seems obvious that he idolized her and even considered her his favorite sibling, his partner in crime. And the fact that she had succumbed to tuberculosis, the same awful disease that took their mother from them, just made it all worse. Though separated by nine years, these deaths would always be linked in Edvard's mind. The two women he loved most struck down by the same illness during Edvard's most vulnerable years. Tuberculosis wasn't a quick death either, so Monk had the dubious opportunity to witness his mother and sister's declines firsthand. They were experiences that would haunt Monk for the rest of his life. Coming up next, the death of his mother and sister haunted Edvard Monk, but would they go on to haunt others too? Stay with us. Some facts are fun, like the first oranges weren't orange, they were actually green, or that armadillo shells are actually bulletproof. But here's a not-so-fun fact. Americans overspend on insurance by $21 billion every year. You deserve all the facts. And that's where the zebra can help you. The zebra compares car and home insurance quotes from every major provider in under five minutes, giving you all the facts you need to make the right decision for you, and all for free. It's the fastest way to find the right coverage at the right price, all from a provider that you can trust. In fact, the Zebra saves shoppers an average of $922 on home and car insurance combined. And that is a very fun fact. I tried out the Zebra just to get an idea of how quick and easy the process was. And let me tell you, it is super fast. It was an easy way to see all of my options in one place and with no additional fees. So get all the facts in one place. Start comparing quotes for free by visiting thezebra.com art. That's thezebra.com art. Today's episode is brought to you by NordVPN, the best VPN for peace of mind, whether you are working at home or out and about and on public Wi-Fi. So think of VPN kind of like an encrypted tunnel for your online traffic. This one is a secure tunnel that only you can get through, so no one else can see through the tunnel and get their hands on your personal data. With NordVPN, you can securely access all personal information or work files, encrypt your internet connection, and keep your browsing history private. And NordVPN is the fastest one out there, legitimately confirmed by speed tests on every platform, Windows, Android, iOS, macOS, and Linux. Even your Android TV supports NordVPN. I know that when I've traveled, I've often gotten frustrated by that little notification on Netflix or Amazon telling me that the content I wanted was not available in my current country. But with NordVPN, that's no longer an issue. Now you can access your favorite content from anywhere, allowing your data to stay at home virtually while you are traveling abroad. It just takes one click. Open up that map, click on a location, and you'll be connected in seconds. 
and that also allows you to get more streaming for your money. If a platform isn't available in your country, you can use this to simply change your virtual location, and voila! Go to nordvpn.com slash artcurious or use the coupon code artcurious to get a two-year plan plus additional months with a huge discount. That's nordvpn.com slash artcurious or use the coupon code artcurious to get a two-year plan plus an additional month with my exclusive discount. Everyone has faced the problem. What gift should I give someone? What to give yourself when you're just sitting at home? What to give a friend or your parents? What to give your wife, your husband, your partner? Or to your children or a colleague at work? If there's anything that I've learned over the last year, it's that everyone loves puzzles. Especially me. Wooden Puzzles from Unidragon solves this problem uniquely. Why do people love Unidragon puzzles? Each puzzle piece has its own unique shape, and it's very interesting and challenging for both children and adults. Each puzzle is packed in a beautiful premium wooden gift box, and their incredibly colorful designs are tantalizing. With new puzzles being released every month, you have so many options to surprise and delight someone special in your life. These gifts allow for novelty, and they certainly have that wow effect. I recently got a puzzle that shows this beautiful landscape of the Italian Riviera. It's just a wonderful escape while I am still working part-time at home. So you should check out Unidragon yourself. To do this, go to unidragon.com and use my promo code ART10 to get 10% off. So remember, it's Unidragon, U-N-I-Dragon, D-R-A-G-O-N.com and use the promo code ART10. Welcome back to Art Curious. Art continued to be the best way for Edvard Munch to exercise any demons that haunted him. And when he was old enough, he opted to make a career out of it, thanks in no small part to his aunt, Karen, who assisted his father in the children's rearing after their mother's death. Like Munch's mother, Karen realized Edvard's artistic talent early on and suggested that he leave the technical school suggested by his father in 1881 in favor of the Royal School of Art and Design in Christiania, the very same art school that his distant relative Jacob Munch had helped to found. And though still dealing with bouts of illness and anxiety, it was at the Royal School of Art and Design that Munch began to thrive, quietly perfecting his art in the middle of rowdy Christiania. He got sucked into a group of artists, thinkers, and writers, and politicians known as the Christiania Bohemians, through which Monk, and all of Christiania really, learned about revolutionary ideas like anarchism and free love from the nihilist writer Hans Jaeger. Jaeger was a firebrand who advocated for violence and destruction, especially of anything aligned with the so-called bourgeoisie the much-maligned middle class of many European countries seen as the establishment that kept control of wealth and status. Though Edvard Munch wasn't part of the Christiania Bohemians per se, he was friendly with Jaeger, even painting a sympathetic portrait of the guy in 1889. But Jaeger's presence in his life wasn't 100% positive. Under his influence, Munch became more cynical, prone to fighting in bar brawls and drinking to excess. Such actions didn't endear Monk or his lifestyle to his father, who was already rather disappointed in his son for abandoning his engineering studies at the technical school. The relationship between father and son thus grew even more strained. 
Throughout this period, Monk struggled to find his artistic style, often fluctuating back and forth to something akin to French Impressionism and to something more naturalistic. But neither really felt right. Impressionism felt too experimental, with too much focus on light and the change of one moment to the next, which was hard when Monk was trying to get at the deeper meaning or the crux of a subject. And yet something realistic didn't sit right either, because he couldn't find a good way to illustrate his emotions or his mental state in a truly naturalistic way. He would eventually pioneer his own method of working that aligns him somewhat with the post-Impressionists, like Van Gogh and Gauguin, with their thick layers of bright, sometimes dissonant colors and distorted forms, and also the symbolists, who conveyed a deeper inner life and emotional complexity, covering topics like sex, love, death, and anxiety. And this expressive mix of styles would suit Edvard Munch to a T. It's no coincidence that Monk's first major artistic breakthrough occurred almost simultaneously with his interest in journaling and self-reflection. And it's through the primary voice of Monk himself in his surviving diaries that we get so much amazing information about his life and his work. Sue Prideaux, in her incredible biography, Monk, Behind the Scream, argues that the artist's greater sense of perspective on himself directly led to what he would refer to as his first, quote, soul painting, unquote, the work that would later launch his career and set the tone for what lay ahead. This painting was his 1886 piece, The Sick Child. And spoiler alert, the Christiania art community didn't really dig it. Viewers thought it was incomplete, just as the Parisians had balked about Impressionists a few years prior, and one critic even called it, quote, a discarded, half-rubbed-out sketch, unquote. Luckily, one journalist stood up for Monk, writing, quote, He paints, or rather regards things, in a way that is different from that of other artists. He sees only the essential. And for this reason, Monk's pictures are, as a rule, not complete, as people are so delighted to discover for themselves. Oh yes, they are complete. His complete handiwork. Art is complete once the artist has really said everything that was on his mind. And this is precisely the advantage that Edvard Munch has over paintings of the other generation, that he really knows how to show us what he has felt and what has gripped him, and to this he subordinates everything else." Unquote. As he would later do with the scream, Edvard Munch returned to the motif of the sick child, a scene clearly inspired by his sister's illness and eventual death from tuberculosis, again and again. Between 1886 and 1926, he would complete six different painted variations on the theme and explored the idea further in a bunch of prints in different working methods, like some done as lithographs, some as etchings, and others still in dry point. That's 40 years of coming back again and again to the awful loss of his sister. And thinking about his sister's death most likely triggered thoughts, again, of his mother's death, that first most traumatic and terrible loss. From his recollections later in life, it appears that one of Monk's earliest memories was of his mother fading away from her soon-to-be fatal illness. He remembered her sitting in a little chair at a window, gazing sadly outside to the field right outside of their home. It makes sense that a child would have one of their earliest memories be of a parent, considering the point at which long-term memory crystallizes and that we spend so much of our earliest years 
at least many of us do, with our immediate families. But this memory also shows that Monk's earliest reminiscences were overshadowed by the death that was soon to come. And as he had done in contemplating and depicting his sister's death over and over again, so he did with his own mother, too. In various paintings and prints, Monk presents his mother sometimes alone on her deathbed, but more often accompanied by at least one person, a child, typically a young girl. In various works called, confusingly, by different titles like The Dead Mother, The Dead Mother and Her Child, and The Child and Death, we are shown a rather colorless, sketchy image of a woman lying in profile on her deathbed, her eyes closed and her severely parted dark hair pulled away from her face. But our focus, really, is not on that barely there mother, but on the child. She stares directly out at us, the viewers, and it's with her that we personally engage. Dressed in a little girl's dress, sometimes red, sometimes white, and wearing tights and little boots, she's the image of childhood innocence. But her face, her face is full of fear, of disbelief. In The Dead Mother, her eyes are wide and round, eyebrows raised in confusion, and she covers her ears, blocking out any sounds that surround her. You can practically imagine that a family member is standing somewhere nearby, just out of the scene, saying gently, she's gone. But the little girl refuses to believe it. It's heartbreaking. And it's probably a real-life experience for Edvard Munch. Munch family legend held that after his mother's death, Edvard frantically searched his mother's bedroom high and low, even crawling under her bed to look for her, as he couldn't conceive of the fact that she was gone taken away to be buried. And it was his sister Sophie, only six years old, only a year older than he, who said that their mother was no longer there, but instead, she said, in heaven. The child in the dead mother is Edvard, but then it is also Sophie, a small girl who surely felt the same profound grief, that same disbelief that their mother had died. Looking at her, we understand the scene and the real-life occurrence of death in all our lives through her emotive face. Other versions of this motif, especially the artist's prints of the same scene, are, to my eyes, even more awful. Take his print from 1901. It's a similar composition narrowed down to only the two main lead figures, but the little girl's face is lined with worry, cheeks shadowed with fury, perhaps. And her hands are no longer appearing to cover her ears, but scrape the sides of her cheeks or pull at her own hair. Her mouth is open, her teeth gritted. In the painted variation, called The Mother and Her Child, created earlier and now in the Monk Museum in Oslo, the child's mouth is a wide O, a howl of anger and shock at the suddenness of this loss. It is, in some ways, a twin to the scream, a yelling figure conceived in anxiety-inducing colors and lines clawing at its own head. But the dead mother, a later painting, cropped down to the essence of that scene again, like the prints are, is stark and blunt. And it's that sense of disbelief that gets to me. An abject refusal to listen to reason, to understand the gravity of the situation. There's something haunting in this little girl's face, in its stark lack of emotion. If she's screaming here, she's screaming on the inside, a wail kept hidden and secret though her eyes telegraph a certain desperation even when the rest of her face doesn't. 
And it's surely because of that mask-like visage that rumors have spread that this version is cursed. And that's coming up after this quick break. Don't go away. Everyone, I am so excited to share the news that The Great Courses Plus is now Wondrium. Wondrium is everything we already know and love about The Great Courses Plus and so much more. Wondrium provides fantastic video and audio learning experience to enrich our lives with mind-blowing moments. We can still stream all of our favorites from The Great Courses, including videos created in partnership with National Geographic, like their birding video, which I loved the Smithsonian, History, the Culinary Institute of America, and so much more. And there's also entirely new programs and series like Wondrium Originals and collections from the Kino Lorber, Magellan TV, and Craftsy Collections. And there are also exclusive documentaries like the award-winning film Breaking Their Silence about women fighting against elephant poaching. All of this is for no extra cost. I want to recommend a fantastic documentary, Hieronymus Bosch, Touched by the Devil. For the 500th anniversary of Bosch's death in 2016, a group of art historians from the Netherlands crisscrossed the globe to unravel the so-called secrets of Bosch's art. And if you love the Garden of Earthly Delights and were enthralled by my chapter on Hieronymus Bosch in my book, you are not going to want to miss this. So prepare to have your mind blown. Sign up now through my special URL to get this awesome offer, a 14-day free trial of unlimited access. Go now to wondrium.com art. That's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash art. Wondrium.com art. This episode of Art Curious is sponsored by Warby Parker, a brand that was founded with a rebellious spirit and a lofty goal to create incredible high-quality eyewear at a revolutionary price point. They are committed to providing exceptional vision care both online and in-store, and they offer an incredible range of eyeglasses, sunglasses, contact lenses, blue light lenses, and even eye exams. Glasses start at just $95, including prescription lenses and progressives and sunglasses and more. And what's super cool and also super fun is that Warby Parker offers a personalized home try-on kit, which gives you the chance to try on five pairs of glasses in the comfort of your own home before making your decision. Warby Parker sent me five frames of my choosing for me to try on at home for five days so that I could really test things out and I got the opinion of family and friends and I basically got to live with these glasses, which is really important to see if they're going to work for you and your look. My try-on began with a really fun quiz that allowed me to hone my style, so I got to choose between square frames over rounded ones and decided if I wanted to try out a funky color or not. And then Warby Parker selected a bunch of options for me to consider, and I then chose my five pairs to try. It was super quick, very painless, and very fun. And plus, it gave me something to look forward to in the mail, which is a really nice bonus. After five days, I got to send my frames back in a prepaid return box, and then I ordered my all-new, fresh, and personalized pair of glasses. You too can try Warby Parker's free home try-on program. Order five pairs of glasses to try at home for five days, and there's no obligation to buy. They ship free and include a prepaid return shipping envelope. So try five pairs of glasses at home for free at warbyparker.com artcurious. That's warbyparker.com artcurious. 
Welcome back to Art Curious. When exactly the urban legend about the supposed hauntedness of the dead mother started, I can't say. Google around and you'll find a plethora of clickbait from paranormal websites and ghost tours claiming this as one of the quote-unquote most haunted paintings in the world. And notable, really, only because it's included as an example of the only work usually mentioned in those listicles created by a famous name. And all of that online content regurgitates the same three traits. First, that the girl's startlingly blue eyes, all wide and terrified, follow you as you move around the painting. Second, some have claimed a rustling sound emanating from the painting, a sound they proclaim stemming from the blankets of the dead mother. What this is supposed to mean, I'm not totally sure. Is the dead woman springing back to life and rustling her bedsheets? Is she a zombie sitting on the bed, stirring? Or is the little girl's dress as she vibrates in despair the one that's making that sound? And third, there's the previous owners who have said that they have seen the little girl disappear from the frame entirely, leaving nothing but an empty, shallow space and the corpse of her mother. Now, let's back it up for a moment. While I can't explain how or why a rustling sound might originate from a painting, perhaps there's a loose exhibition or gallery label on the back of the canvas, or it's rubbing against the wall, or maybe, of course, it's just a trick of the imagination, I can say for certain that the whole eyes in the painting are following you thing is actually a pretty normal and not supernatural element. A 2004 study from a professor at the psychology department of Ohio State University, Dr. James Todd, couches it as a crystal clear example of how our perspective changes, visually speaking, when we look at a two-dimensional object versus a three-dimensional one. As Todd notes, quote, No matter what angle you look at a painting from, the painting itself doesn't change. You are looking at a flat surface. The pattern of light and dark remain the same. We found that our visual perception of a picture also remains largely unchanged as we look at it from different vantage points. If a person in a painting is looking straight out, it will always appear that way, regardless of the angle from which it is viewed, unquote. So this is different from how we look at objects and surfaces in the real world, when our eyes, and therefore our brains, understand how things change in depth in real time. So how close or how near something is, is dependent on our own viewing of direction and our viewing standpoint. So, Todd concludes, quote, When we observe a picture on a wall, on the other hand, the visual information that defines near and far points is unaffected by viewing direction. Still, we interpret this perceptually as if it were a real object, and that is why eyes appear to follow you as you change your viewing direction. Unquote. So if a painting's gaze is following you, it is not haunted, regardless of what they may want you to believe in the haunted mansion at Disneyland. It's just how our brains process things. And then there's the last part, that little girl disappearing from the frame part. Only a few years after Edvard Munch painted The Dead Mother, the British writer M.R. James published Ghost Stories of an Antiquary, his 1904 collection of short stories that would go on to inspire generations of writers from H.P. Lovecraft to Stephen King. I mention this because not only is Ghost Stories of an Antiquary a fantastic collection, but this tale of the little girl disappearing in the work of art immediately reminded me of one of the most famous tales in that collection, called The Mezzotint. In brief, and I can't avoid spoilers here, so just bear with me, 
The story centers around the recollection of an art collector who acquires works of art for a university. And one of the works is a print of a country house that mysteriously changes over time. A door is suddenly seen as a jar. A grotesque figure crawls across the sprawling lawn to enter the manor house. So while this rather famous ghost story was published four or five years after Monk painted The Dead Mother, a story of a disappearing girl, a trope, now cliché, of a supernatural painting was already in the air in creative circles. It had even reached the big time with one of the most famous and most popular writers of the time, Oscar Wilde, whose transforming portrait of Dorian Gray had set the tone for legions of legends to come with his 1890 literary masterwork. And those stories of the disappearing girl were said to have stemmed from the painting's previous owners. But this painting, the one discussed on paranormal YouTube channels and a bunch of spooky websites, that work belongs to the Kunsthalle Bremen in Germany. And from the provenance information that I was able to get from the Kunsthalle's employees firsthand, I was in touch with their research staff to confirm details of provenance, which, as a reminder, is the history of the ownership of the work of art. Those contacts told me that it had been part of the Kunsthalle's collection since it was purchased at a gallery in Berlin in 1919, after being in a private collection in Mannheim, Germany, and in Vienna, Austria before that. Previous to that, in one of the earliest bibliographic references to the painting, the work was titled The Dead Mother and was noted as being in the possession of the Fritz Gerlitt Gallery in Berlin. And if that surname sounds familiar, it's because we discussed a member of the extended Gerlitt clan, Cornelius Gerlitt, all the way back in Art Curious episode number 31, because that section of the Gerlitt family had a rather ignoble history. At least a couple of the Gerlitt family members, Hildebrand and Wolfgang, who were cousins, trafficked in stolen artworks for the Nazis during World War II. And rather famously, Hildebrand's son, Cornelius, hid away a now infamous treasure trove of over 1,300 looted works of art in his apartment in Munich, a trove finally discovered in 2012. So if this painting had been haunting anyone in the Gerlitt family prior to its arrival at the Kunsthalle Bremen, I haven't been able to find a reference to it. If anything, we are the ones who are haunted by the specter of war profiteers like the Gerlitz, who took so many works of art away from their rightful owners during one of the worst wars of all time. And above anything else, the most haunted of all was Edvard Munk himself, haunted by the tragic death of his mother, a life-changing event that was unfathomable and terrifying to the poor young boy. He couldn't escape the memories and the emotions associated with that loss, and maybe he didn't want to. Maybe he wanted to repeat such things in paint and ink and pen because he needed to go over it, as we might discuss a trauma again and again with a therapist or a trusted friend. It seems truly that he needed to work out his memories in paint here, which makes sense. As Monk himself once wrote, quote, In my art, I attempt to explain life and its meaning to myself. Unquote. Coming up next time, it's our season finale, and we've been teasing it a little bit all season, because how can we not end by talking about one of the most cursed treasures of all time? And before you ask, yes, archaeology and art history do go hand in hand. So come back to us in two weeks because we are going to Egypt, at least in our story.
thank you for listening to the Art Curious Podcast. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel, with additional writing and research help by Jessica Walschleger. Our theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com, and our logo is by Dave Rainey at daverainydesign.com. Our podcast services are provided by our friends at Kabunki. Subscribe now to their new show, Subgenre, a podcast about the movies hosted by Josh Dassel, and visit subgenrepodcast.com for more details. The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored primarily by AnchorLight. AnchorLight is a creative space founded with the intent of fostering artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. Home to artist studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition space, AnchorLight encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the triangle. Please visit AnchorLightRaleigh.com. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator, which means you can donate tax-free to Art Curious to show your support, and I will thank you personally on the air. To find the donation links and for more details about our show, including our episode's reading lists, please visit our website, artcuriouspodcast.com. We are also on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at ArtCuriousPod. And don't forget, we have merch. Check out the link to our Tee Public store in the show notes on the episode or on our website. Check back in two weeks as we explore the unexpected, slightly odd, and strangely wonderful in potentially cursed works and artifacts in art history.